And what great promises we have from God. And the great promise that He loves us is His promise to us. He really, really does love you. You know that? Our great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, takes pleasure in you. He loves you. And He loves to be in the center of the place of praise when we praise Him. Father, it is good to be here this morning. Good to be with your people. Good to uh, experience the working of God among us. Lord, thank you for those this morning who offered their lives to you. Father, thank you for salvation. Thank you that you save people. Thank you that the Spirit of God moves on hearts and draws people to yourself. Thank you for drawing some people this morning. Father, I pray that you would continue to be pleased to work among us, that the Spirit of God might be uh, palpable, and that you might be pleased, Father, to um, soften our hearts, cause us to have listening ears, our eyes to be wide open. I pray, Father, that... The message of Christ, the gospel that Jesus saves, would be clearly proclaimed. I I pray, Father, that you would uh, speak through um, these stammering lips, that you would empower the words that come forth, that are your words, that they would move themselves into people's lives. I pray, Father, that you would help us in preparation as we uh, work and prepare for this coming week. Lord, this, uh, this week that is set aside to remind us how much you love us, it's incomprehensible. What Christ went through to save us, it tells us how much you love us. Father, I pray that there would be nobody here this morning who isn't aware of how much you love them. And that whatever trouble or whatever challenge they're going through in their life, that they might be assured that you love them. So our Father, uh, I pray that this might be an offering from us to you and that you might work powerfully through your word. For ask us in Jesus' name, amen. If you have been with us for the last couple of weeks, you know that we have been camping on a verse. John chapter 14, verse 6. It is, I think, second only to John 3.16 is perhaps the most well-known verse among Christianity. I don't have any statistical data to prove that, but I just think it's probably true. John 14.6 is, Jesus said... All right, let's let's start over again. (laughs) Kelvin, thank you for leading us. You've done done the best you could. But, but you didn't have your team with you, so they're coming. Jesus said, Great. So you do know it. It's a great verse, John 14, 6. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except through me. We have spent the last couple of weeks talking about the first two statements on that verse. I am the way, I am the truth. 
And, and for most of us, we say, you know, I can, I can comprehend that. I understand that. I understand why I would need to know the way to the Father. And I understand why I need to know the truth. If I want to get to the Father, I need to know the truth about how to get there. But I'm not sure about this life thing. Why did Jesus say, I am the life? No one comes to the Father except for me. How does that connect to the statement, no one comes to the Father except through me? I, I mean, after all, um, I'm alive and doing fine, as the five-man electrical band said years ago, aren't I? I mean, am I not fine? If I need life, am I not alive? Does that mean I'm dead? I need you to... Uh, Come with me to the very front of your Bibles, probably the second page in, in, chapter, uh, in Genesis. We need to go back to the very beginning and ask the question, why do I need life? What caused me to be dead? What killed us? I want to take you from the very beginning and move you through the whole of the scriptures this morning. So settle in. It's going to be a while. I'm just kidding. But we are going to start in Genesis and we're going to find our way back to John and uh, we'll, we'll get there. I want to take you to the very beginning at creation. At creation, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says this, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That's the creation account. That's the explanation of how mankind was created. In fact, um, Man is uniquely created to express the character of God. I don't know if you noticed there, but there's a breathing into this creation from God into the nostrils of man, the breath of life. This was not some sort of result of a freaky mutation. This was an intentional, divine, indwelling, in-breathing of the nature of God who breathed into man. The life of God's spirit, spiritual life, came upon Adam. And it was an amazing thing. He was not only animated, he was spiritually alive. He was a perfect example of the image of God. Perfect in every way. He had, because of that, by virtue of this breath of life breathed into his nostrils, a predisposition to operate on the outside from the center life source of the Spirit of God inside. Mankind at that time, was invited to choose life. Not only did he have life breathed into him, spiritual life breathed into him, but he was invited to go and feast on the spiritual energy of God. Look a couple of verses along, Genesis 2, 9, and the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were Two trees among many other trees. Sometimes we, only, we get fixated on one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we forget about this very significant tree called the tree of life. At that time, man was invited to grow and feast on the very nature and energy and spiritual energy of God by eating of the tree of life. You'll encounter the tree of life again in Revelation chapter 22, verse 2, or 14 and 19, a picture of heaven. So they were invited to go from spiritual life to behavioral excellence, depending totally on the full impact of God, of the God of life. This is what we would call, by feasting on the tree of life, the abundant life that Jesus was talking about in John chapter 10, verse 10. 
This is the very thing that the writer of Proverbs was referencing in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 30, when he talks about the fruit of righteousness. It was a reference to feasting on God. There would no corru- be no corruption. It would be immortality. And, and it would be abundant life. To work out what God has already worked in. That's the picture here. It was the choice for God alone as the way, the truth, and the life. But at that time, there was also another choice made available. It was the choice to choose death. In verse 17 of Genesis chapter 2, you will note that it says... That God said to, the, to, the, uh, to, to Adam, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. So there was the presentation of the tree of life to live abundantly. God, the way, the truth, and the life. Or there was the choice to choose this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God said to him, in literally two times he mentions the word death in that phrase, dying You will die. It was, in fact, if one were to eat of that tree, that one would experience and base his life on his own standards of good and evil rather than God being the standard of good and and character of good. And any intentions or character outside of God would be classified as evil. But in this particular situation, to choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... It would be to base good and evil upon the standard of man himself. It would be the choice of mankind to say, I will choose what is good. Whatever works for me is good. Whatever doesn't work for me is bad. Whatever makes me feel good is good. Whatever doesn't make me feel good is bad. And the standard would then be man rather than God. It was the relativizing of truth, of life, of the way. Unfortunately, in chapter 3, verse 6, we find that the first people chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. They determined that they would now feast upon self-determination rather than God. Now, by the way, um, if you are feverishly trying to write down all these notes this morning, I just need to give you a heads up. You probably won't be able to do it, and I don't want you to get frustrated with Bev up there as she rolls by with her water-cooled PowerPoint up there, because we're moving you through very quickly some very important things, but I want you to see them visually. And if you really need it because you're a type A personality, all these notes are available to you by simply asking Krista at the office after the service if you could have your own personal long form of these, of these notes. All right? So I'll just say that to you because I know I can see the frustration. I can feel it. I can feel it already. Some of you out there are just really angry at me already, and I don't want that to be. So now they were going to choose to feast on the idea of self-determining good and evil. So the question is, what died? Because God said, the sec- God said, when you eat of that, you will die. Surely you will die. And we read on and we find out that they didn't drop dead. So what died? 
Well, the definition, by the way, of death is the deprivation or absence of a particular life function previously enjoyed. He says you will surely die. So what died? Well, if we were to look ahead in the New Testament, in the description found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it describes there the state of mankind. It says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. That is the description of what died. The spiritual man, what was breathed into man, the Spirit of God, and the energizing of God went out, and now the man is now a natural man, and the spiritual has died. The natural man is now missing the Spirit of God. And the things of God. In fact, the spiritual life connection to God by virtue of the breath of life has moved out. God moved out and Satan filled the spiritual vacuum by moving in. We need to understand that, that man is not a self-generative creature. Man is a derivative creature. Man is a dependent creature. We were created... To depend upon God. So when the first man and woman ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they didn't, as they thought, become entirely self-dependent. They didn't realize they were trading God for a new spiritual influence. It would be the influence of the evil one himself. The reason I know that to be true is because the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, and he described there what people, the state of people prior to conversion to Jesus Christ. And I pick up the verse, chapter 2, verse 2, Ephesians, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, note this, in those who are disobedient. God moved out, and Satan filled the vacuum and moved in, and now the man is classified as natural man, unable to receive, welcome, the things of the Spirit. Now, by the way, Paul goes on to state as well in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, so everyone is born spiritually dead to God instead of the original, spiritually alive. As for you, he says, to the Christian standing in front of him, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So we started out asking the question, what died? What killed us? How did we get here? The answer is, when Adam and Eve decided that they would eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the spiritual life died. And as in one man, as one man sinned, in that man all men have sinned. Romans 5 verse 12. And so, in the absence of Christ, we are dead spiritually. And that's a very precarious place to be in. I mean, how bad is the situation? When God said to the man and woman, to, to Adam, in dying you shall die, when they lost their spiritual life, it started the process, 
we call in science entropy. And physically, they were dying. In fact, it says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, that on the outside, we are wasting away. Now, I probably don't have to tell you that. You already know that. In fact, as I look out over the, out over the audience, some of you are more wasted than others. But we are wasting away. When we died spiritually because of sin, there is a physical deterioration that is taking place. Now, that's all bad enough, don't you think? But if left unchanged, it gets worse. Jesus himself said in Matthew 25, 46, that those who do not have spiritual life, do not have life, will go away to eternal punishment. He also said, through the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, 9, he, meaning God, will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. There's a conscious separation of God forever to those who die when they are dead. There is, because of the permanence of sin in the absence of forgiveness of Jesus Christ to those who have no life-transforming relationship with him, based on the permanence of sin, there will be a perpetual death. But at a meal several thousand years later, this is where we fast forward to John chapter 14. Jesus stood before his disciples at that most significant last supper, and offered his body as spiritual food and his blood as spiritual drink, that those who would receive him, those who would choose life, would move from death to their trespasses and sins to life in Christ. And he stood before them and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Choose life. He said to them that at that Supper occasion, will you take from the tree of life or will you continue to stay with the tree of death, the death of your own choices and standard of living that is not God's standard, that causes us to fall way short of the glory of God, separated from God and in cahoots with the evil one. That's your choice. Basically said to them, you want to take another run at that breath of life thing, that tree of life thing, guys. The whole of the Gospel of John is formed in a, a, a type of new genesis, a new creation, a new opportunity. I am the life, he says. I am the total package. So let me ask you at this point in the sermon, have you been made alive? That's the most important question you'll ever answer. Have you been made alive by Jesus Christ? And the second question, if you have been made alive by Jesus Christ, are you fully feasting on him? The life-giving richness of Jesus. I, I want to take you on a bit of a journey this morning with that as a backdrop. 
toward the characteristics of mankind that, that keep us from choosing life or keep us from fully feasting on Christ if we have received life. Now, I, I want to give you four examples this morning, uh, ideas from my own life experience, my own counseling, my own self, and some uh, help from Larry Crabb in an excellent book called Connections. I borrow some of his thinking. What I'm inviting you to do today is to choose life and to be set free from the choices that are deadening your living. When Adam and Eve, first of all, were are turned on God, they, they um, decided to make it on their own. We read further in Genesis chapter 3 where God kicked them out of the garden. At that time, they were moved out of their place of security. The place where they had a, an identity in, in God. And, and as we read a little bit further, we understand that, that, that this insecurity was now their new identity. And, and you find out that they were self-conscious and, and didn't measure up. And they were ashamed of themselves. They were ashamed and embarrassed. And they were ashamed and embarrassed to be involved in anything spiritual. In fact, they were afraid of God. When he sees who we really are, uh, when he sees what we're really like, he won't like us. He won't want us anymore. In fact, there's a lot of people around our community this morning in hiding. You know why I didn't come to church this morning? They didn't come to church this morning because they're hiding from Jesus. They're afraid to meet up with him. They're ashamed of the lives they've been living. Because they've chosen to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Isn't that the way people are? Isn't that what people are like? A preoccupation with personal adequacy. Afraid of failure. Connecting with... They connect with people for affirmation, but not really for relationship. They just want to find people who will tell them that they're good and, and that they're, they're okay, I'm okay, you're okay. They don't really want a relationship. They don't really want a relationship with God. They just want a God who will prop them up or tell them that they're really good. They're addicted to their credentials and their accomplishments. That's what the scriptures point to in in Genesis chapter 3, verse 23, so the Lord God banished him, meaning Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken. And later on in humanity, as it unfolds with this sense of insecurity and self-consciousness about sinfulness and ashamed and embarrassed about themselves, not wanting to come into the places of spiritual involvement because they're afraid of God, it says in, in Genesis eleven four, come let us build ourselves a city. With a tower that reaches to the heavens. So we can be secure. So we can make a name for ourselves. And not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So we can have a new identity. An identity of personal adequacy. We don't have to be afraid of failure anymore. That's why people amass things. And build monuments. And depend upon personal resources. They're called city builders. Because they're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I think that's why the disciples were troubled when Jesus said he was leaving. In the very context of John chapter 14 that we're talking about. After all, they had banked it all on Jesus. 
They were part of an inside crowd on a new cool movement. They liked what they had going. Their their significance and their security were in Jesus. If Jesus is taking off, what do we have left? We're going to have to build something for ourselves. Our world is preoccupied by making a living instead of getting a life. That's why Jesus stood in front of them and said, I am the life. Not what you can build. Not your personal adequacy. Not your own personal securities. I am it. I am the life. And I'll build you a wonderful place to live. You can bank on it. You can be secure in this. I'll give you a new identity and a new security. I'm the life. There's a second type of people. They're not city builders. They're control freaks. You know any of them? The, the, the big thing of their life is the one question, what do I have to do to fix this thing right now so I can get on with the next thing? Sometimes I feel like I'm looking at one in the mirror. What do I need to do to fix this? What, what do I need to do? What kind of resources do I need to amass today to just fix things and, and get everything going well? Living is getting everything under control. No surprises. Insurance is fully in place. Practical, pragmatic, self-reliant, strategic, process-fixated, hating uncertainty. I've shared this text with you before, Isaiah 50, verses 10 and 11. This is what God says. But now all of you who are control freaks, well, he says it a little differently, who light fires and provide yourselves with flaming torches, Go walk in the light of your own fires and of the torches you've set ablaze. See, this is what you shall receive from my hand. You will lie down in torment. Go ahead. Take confidence in the fact that you've got flashlights all over the place, strategically located in every part of your house, just in case the lights go out. You're totally prepared. You're totally under control. You've got life all figured out. You firelighters. You don't want, really want Jesus. You just want predictability. You know, maybe if I attach myself to God, I'll live in a really controlled situation. There won't be any surprises. I'll be able to predict every day what's going to happen. What a wonderful way to live. God fixing everything to be perfect for me. Perfect kids, perfect marriage, perfect job, perfect me. Well, one in four is not too bad. (laughs) When it comes to sermon time, you don't really like sermons that are entitled How... Loving God is. You want the sermon that says, how can I use God's love to fix my life? In seven easy steps. If God could just provide control and predictability, I'm interested in Jesus. Is anybody out here living in a perfectly controlled and unpredictable life? Or predictable life, I should say. Anybody? Got your flashlights? 
strategically located, anticipating everything. Larry Crabb says, The demand to walk a path with a predictable outcome is an urge of the flesh. How much time do you find yourself trying to help God get you the things you really want? Dotting the I's and crossing the T's for God is your preoccupation. Rather than waiting for God to show you what He wants for you and when He wants it for you. You're a firelighter. And Jesus says, when you finally give up on trying to fix your life yourself, I am the life you must choose. I'm it. Choose me. There's a um, third category of people who have a preoccupation with safe. The need to be and feel safe. You know anybody like that? Throughout the Last Supper night, the disciples were systematically sharing with each other their bravado. We'll die for you, Lord. Play it safe, not us. Before the night was over, they were all running for cover, afraid for their lives. And why wouldn't they be? Are we, are we critical of that? Do we think we would be any less as they watch Jesus be dragged away and start to be whipped in the, in the court? Do we, do we think that we would be standing forth with great bravery? Safety and physical life had suddenly become more important to them than Jesus. And it can happen to us. I wouldn't call myself exactly safety conscious. Playing it safe personally has never really been my strong suit. In fact, I, I thought I was immune to this, this problem of needing to feel safe. I mean, after all, I was kind of a laid back about safety and risk and all of that with the kids. Ah, it's merely a flesh wound. Pick them up, dust them off. You'll be fine. Kids choking to death. Fortunately, they had a mother. Or none of them would be alive past 10. But I wasn't addicted to safety. At least I didn't think I was. Or physical life. Until September 2006. September 2006, something emotionally snapped in me when I got news from Tanzania, Africa that my predictable, controlled, fix-it life was now facing the real possibility that my kid no longer had a mere flesh wound, but that my oldest son was dead. And it was a lot of hours before I found out he wasn't. And I had a lot of hours to think about that and a lot of hours since then to think about it. And I realized that somewhere deep inside of me, I value breathing and seeing and moving and loving my kids and my wife and my mom and dad and other people who mean so much to me. And I realized that this living, the physical life, actually really does matter to me. And maybe, you know what I found out? Maybe too much. Too much. 
In Isaiah 30, verses 10 and 11, the congregation are saying to the seers, See no more visions, and to the prophets, give us no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusions. Leave this way. Get off this path and stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. Pastor, please just tell us warm and fuzzy good things. Don't tell us that our life might take on some sort of Tragic, troublesome, really horrible scenario. Don't tell us that. Don't tell us that that we aren't guaranteed 75 or 80 or 85 uh, healthy years of life. Don't tell me that. Because I need to feel safe. There are those fixated on physical life and health and living. The physical here and now is how life is defined. Ezekiel the prophet said, Because they lead my people astray, saying, Peace when there is no peace. And because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. When the wall collapses, will people not ask you, Where is the whitewash you covered it with? The whitewash of safety. You have this flimsy life. I've got all my insurance policies. i got my doors locked. I've got a safety policy. I've got my kids buckled into the the, the seat until high school, the child's seat until high school. i got my little kid with a great kazoo helmet on his tricycle. i got them all wrapped in bubble wrap. What are you talking about? I've got the whitewash thing going. All my walls are going to stand up. I even eat organically. (laughs) Not by my own choice, I might add. (laughs) I'm digging into the antioxidants. Blueberry pie happens to be my favorite. (laughs) And we exercise. None of which is wrong until it replaces trust In Jesus, until our faith collapses when life is unpredictable. If you have to feel safe and need to worship physical life, you will never find rest in Jesus. You got some flimsy walls of sinful behavior going on in your life? And you're whitewashing them all with a happy Christian smile and nice Sunday clothes. When the wall falls down, and it will, the people will ask you, what happened to your Christian smile? What happened to your Sunday clothes? Did it not work for you? God won't let us play God with life. Jesus says you must choose your manufactured feeling of safety or eternity in the Father's house. I am the life. There's one last group of people. Life is a highway. Life is a party. Life is a beach. Life is a uh, doctor who overprescribes 
happy pills. Give me another Oxycontin, please. So I can medicate my deadness. I can live it up and try to feel alive. I can be addicted to adrenaline and immediate gratification. I can entertain myself to life. Replacing the reality of deadness with the temporary feeling of aliveness as a replacement for God. It's not the life Jesus came to offer. Jeremiah 2, 11 and 13. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water. Drink me, Jesus says. And have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Hole diggers, eating from the wrong tree every day. Jesus says, choose, I am the life. The way and kind of life that takes you to the Father's house, which is out of this world. You want the way? Choose Jesus. You want the truth? Choose Jesus. You want the life? Choose Jesus. The mission of Jesus, as I understand it from John 14, verse 6, is to bring his disciples to the Father. Right where we want to be. There's a tremendous verse that was highlighted for me in life by one of my great friends, Steve Legg. Psalm 1611. Steve is proof that life isn't predictable. We don't get to control the way we'd like things to be necessarily. Psalm 1611. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence now and with eternal pleasures at your right hand then. That's what Christ came to offer. Receiving Jesus, who is the life, connects us to the Father, who is the life. And we ourselves receive that life, starting now and forever. Jesus says, I'm it. Choose life or stay dead. What is it for you? Our Father, when Christ stood before his disciples in that Last Supper room and made this most significant statement, life-transforming statement, Father, it wasn't only a declaration. It was an invitation. You want the way? Come to me, Jesus said. You want the truth? Come to me, Jesus said.
You want life? To go from dead in your trespasses and sins? Not spiritually alive? Destined for eternal hell? To be alive spiritually? Receiving and welcoming the spiritual feast of God? Come to me, Jesus said. And I'll take you to the Father's house. I'll I'll park you in his presence now and forever. Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would make this a watershed morning. There are people in here this morning who have been living in their deadness. No spiritual life. Hiding from God. Ashamed. Today is the day of life. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to choose life. To eat from the tree of life. To breathe in the breath of life from Jesus Christ. It's an offer. An invitation. Thank you, Father, the Holy Spirit is at work among us. For Jesus' sake, amen. Beloved, it's decision time. This is an important moment for you and for me, for all of us. Jesus offers us life. As was the case at the very beginning, tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what has it been in your life? You a city builder? Preoccupied by your own adequacy? Are you a whitewasher? You've been covering up the flimsy walls of your life? Preoccupied by life and safety, predictability and control. Maybe you're a firelighter, got all your flashlights in strategic places so that everything will work out just fine. Or maybe you find yourself the uh, hole digger. You've been trying to make yourself feel alive, but you aren't really alive. There are three possibilities in here this morning. The one is that you have never connected to Jesus Christ. You are still dead in your trespasses and sins. The other is that you have come to Christ, but you haven't been feasting on Jesus. You haven't been eating of the tree of life. You've been holding on to Jesus from a distance, but you're fixing your own life. You're controlling things. You got everything in a neat package. You're entertaining yourself to life. Or the third is that you've come to Christ and you're feasting on Him. And I, you know what? I hope that's the, tr- the, the way it is for most of the people who are here this morning, if not all. But I think it's not that. So I'm going to invite you just to bow your heads as we could close. This is, the, this is it. This is just decision time. Maybe there's someone here like there was several in the first service who said, you know what, I, I am not connected to Jesus. I'm not, I'm not alive. I need you to bow your heads, everybody. Everybody bow your heads. 
Say, you know what? I'm not connected to Jesus. I never have been. But today, I realize in hearing that he is the life and that I'm dead in my trespass and sin, I don't have life. Today, I want to receive Christ. Today is the day of salvation. I'm not going to ask you to do anything or embarrass you. This is between you and God. I'm just going to invite you to slip up your hand so I can pray for you. Is there anybody here who says that? Okay, yes. Anybody else? Yeah. I've never, I've never been forgiven and moved out of the deadness of my trespass of sin. There are several of you. Maybe there's some in here this morning. You can put your hands down. Thank you. Maybe there's some in here this morning who have a life-transforming relationship with Jesus that isn't really being much, isn't much life-transforming going on because we're still trying to do it ourselves. Still addicted to ourselves and safety and walls and control and all that stuff and not feasting on Jesus as life. But today you want to say, this is a watershed day in my life, Lord. I, I need you to... to turn my heart away from these things and my dependencies away from these things and I need to feast on you are there people here this morning who would say yeah pray for me Rick this, that's what I want that's what I need okay thank you yep mm-hmm yes alright anybody else I'm going to assume the rest of you then are walking with the Lord and feasting on him and praise the Lord for that let's pray Father you know our hearts whether we put our hand up or didn't put our hand up or whatever we did in here this morning there's no secrets from you Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life choose life there is no way to come to the Father except through me Lord there are some here in this first service and this service now who said I want to I connect with you it says in the word of God, whoever received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. You have that right here. Just reach out to Christ. Receive him. He will be your savior and forgive you of your sins. And you can go from deadness to life in an instant. Father, thank you for saving people here today. And Father, for the rest of us who are needing to feast on that tree of life, need to feast on Jesus. First of all, thank you for breathing life into a spiritual life and connection to Christ. And now, Lord, may we be constantly feasting on the fruit of righteousness, Jesus Christ. Lord, there are some who have particularly indicated that by raised hands this morning. That's a real issue in their lives. I pray by the power of God's Spirit that you will give them a new appetite for the things of Jesus and turn from the city building and the whitewashing the, the hole digging, the fire lighting, Lord, all of that stuff that keeps us away from our full experience of, with you of abundant life. That's our desire, Lord. As we prepare ourselves for this most important week of reaching out into our community with the truth of the gospel that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.